Truth Espresso, episode 81. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello and welcome to Truth Espresso. This is your host, Daniel Minnick, and we are going through a series of episodes about who is Jesus, what is Jesus like. But in addressing this, we're actually taking a unique perspective. Because we are actually comparing Jesus to superheroes, and we're actually doing this in somewhat chronological order as we look through church history. So we're taking ideas of Jesus that were wrong in church history, and we're comparing them to superheroes. And asking the question, is Jesus like one of my favorite superheroes? And so if you're just tuning in to this episode, you're just exploring Truth Espresso because you saw your favorite superhero in the title, I would encourage you to listen to the last two episodes, episodes 79 and 80, because those two episodes are part of the series and they give a little more background to the issues we're talking about. They talk about other errors about Jesus. And so, episode 79 asked the question, is Jesus like Superman? And the answer was no, because Superman wasn't really human. He was only divine-ish. And so, if we think of Superman as divine, Jesus could not be like Superman because Jesus wasn't just divine. Jesus was indeed a human. He didn't just look human. He really was human. And so, Jesus couldn't be like Superman. And Superman Superman couldn't be a substitute to pay the penalty for the sins of human beings because Superman's not human. And then in episode 80, the previous episode, we asked the question, is Jesus like Batman? And we had to answer, unfortunately, no. Although Batman is fully human and Batman is one cool dude and Batman excels against a lot of human beings and the abilities of both mind and body of both intellect and agility, that's still not enough to compare to Jesus. And Batman, although he can beat up some thugs and clean up a city, he couldn't die to pay the penalties of sins like Jesus had to be able to do. He Batman also could not be a substitutionary atonement. Now, for one reason, Batman is, of course, a sinner in comic book land. He does things wrong. And Jesus was sinless, but that's not the only reason. We talked about in the last episode that Jesus had to be fully divine for him to bear the penalty of the sins, including the capital offenses of multitudes of people. He had to have both the the nature of divinity to satisfy God and the worth, such to be able to endure the payment for the sin, as the law of God says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, in order for Jesus to be the atonement for many, as the scriptures say. 
By one man many were made righteous. He hath suffered the sins of many. And how could he do that? How could he provide salvation and pay the penalty due for capital offenses, even the most heinous sins imaginable, by multiple people, unless he were also divine as well as human? He had to be human to be a substitute for humans, and he had to be divine to fully endure the wrath of God. God and pay the penalty of sins for a multitude of people. He had to have that ability, that nature, and that worth to be able to do that, and so that's why Jesus also had to be fully divine. So, in this episode, episode 81, we're going to ask the question, is Jesus like Ant-Man? So, who is Ant-Man? So, according to Marvel Comics, biophysicist Dr. Henry Pym in 1963 experimented with subatomic particles to change his size for various superhero tasks. He actually created a suit that would be able to do that for him and the suit. And so, Dr. Henry Pym in 1963 was the first, the original Ant-Man. But eventually, Scott Lang, an electronics engineer, stole this super suit, this Ant-Man suit, to save his daughter from a terminal heart condition. And so Mr. Lang, because he was a thief, then had to face his due process of law and do jail time for his crimes. But Dr. Pym, the inventor of the suit, the Ant-Man suit, saw fit to let Mr. Lang redeem himself by carrying out the role of the superhero Ant-Man. And so Scott Lang, the electronics engineer and petty thief, became the superhero Ant-Man. So, right off the bat, we could, if we ask the question, is Jesus like the Ant-Man, we would have to exclude the idea that Jesus committed any crimes, like Scott Lang as the Ant-Man. So, that's one mark against the Ant-Man being like Jesus. But, for the purpose of this episode, we are not going to consider that in our comparison. So, let's forget about all the biography of the Ant-Man when we consider our comparisons. So how is Jesus like the Ant-Man if we stretch our imaginations a little bit? Well, if Jesus is God, then God is omnipresent, and we could say that God can take on any form and any size he wants. God is compared to a still, small voice. God is seen as as a giant on the throne, and God is seen as an angel about the size of human beings. And so, the ant-man, who can change his size, can be large, normal-sized, or small. But let's focus on one aspect of the ant-man to see if Jesus is like him in this regard. Let's think about the Ant-Man and some hypothetical encounters that people could have with him. So, if someone didn't see the Ant-Man in all his sizes, but only one of the sizes, we could interview some people about their encounters with the Ant-Man. And we might have things like this. 
Oh, I have seen the Ant-Man. He is ginormous. He's about a hundred feet tall. He's like a god. He is strong and fearsome. I mean, who in his right mind would dare to challenge him? Now that is the Ant-Man. Uh, another person who might have encountered the Ant-Man could say, Oh, I have seen the Ant-Man. He's a human just like we are. He's an average height, and there's nothing about his appearance that would make you think he's super. There are some people who've reported seeing him do some amazing things, but you might just have to see that for yourself to believe it. Otherwise, at first glance, he's just a human of average height and weight. And we might have a third account that could say, Oh, I have seen the Ant-Man. Well, I haven't actually seen him because he's kind of a still small voice or a mysterious mover. Now, some people say that he is really tiny and nimble that you can't see him. I don't really know for sure. All I know is that I have definitely seen the evidence of him at work. I have seen him make people do things that they didn't originally intend to do because he moves them. He has even made some objects move out of place, and there's no other good explanation for the, these phenomena other than that's the unseen tiny Ant-Man at work. So, we see this Ant-Man can have three different accounts of his manifestation— one might say he's a giant, one might say he's normal size, and another might say that he can't really see him because he's really tiny, but they see him move. So, with these three accounts, we can conceive of an idea of Jesus that some people have had, or rather an idea of God that some people have had. This is what we call the modalist view of God. So, in the modalist view of God, there is one person of God who simply reveals himself in three different ways. So, according to the modalist view, in history, God was known as the Father. And then, with Jesus, he was revealed as the Son, which is just the human identity of Jesus. And then, when Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit came, and this was God's third manifestation. There is no difference in who between these three. It's just how this one who, this one God, chooses to reveal himself in three different ways at three different times. The three identities of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three manifestations of the one person. The Father is manifested as great and powerful. So, unlike the Ant-Man, the Father isn't a 100-foot-tall man. The Father is God, and He is omnipotent and omnipresent, filling the universe, commanding archangels, judging the earth, and destroying the enemies of His people. And this Father God is the creator of all things. So, no one can see His eternal essence and live. He reveals Himself through a mighty angel, the Ark of the Covenant, a thunderous voice and lightning from the top of Mount Zion, and bright Shekinah glory in the holiest of holies in the temple. And now the Son is another manifestation of this same God person, but as a human being of average size and weight. He demonstrates his power to some people while only being the human that he is to other people. 
Although some people have seen him at special events such as the Transfiguration, and they saw his divine glory, others have only seen a humble human servant who then died on the cross. But now the the Holy Spirit is the third, uh, another manifestation of the same one person of God. As this manifestation, God reveals himself, the one person, as the Holy Spirit, who works mysteriously and invisibly. The role of God as mighty warrior is now minimized through the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and God as the Holy Spirit works through changing hearts and giving some people special gifts. So you don't see him, but you see subtle evidence of him at work. And so that's what we would consider the modalist understanding of God. And it's kind of like the Ant-Man in that it's one person who just shows himself in different ways at different times to different people. He's big sometime, and then he's normal size sometime, and then he's small another time. And that would be an analogy of a modalistic view of God. So, if we look at early church history, next on our radar comes Sabellianism. So, what is Sabellianism? Sabellianism comes from a guy named Sabellius, naturally. So, Sabellius was a leader in the church in the western regions of the church in the 3rd century. His influence seems to have spread from Rome to North Africa, Sibelius taught that God was one person, one individual person, and that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were three different manifestations or modes of that one person of God. Each manifestation or mode of God performed distinctive roles. The Father is God as Creator, the Son is God as Redeemer, the Holy Spirit is God as Influencer. And so, at first glance, we might not think as Christians who believe in the Trinity that any of this is awry. It it, it seems pretty orthodox until we examine it under a microscope, no pun intended, you know, thinking of Ant-Man as really small. (laughs) So, let's look at Sibelius in early church history. So, this is what Sibelius taught, that God showed himself one person in three different modes. That God wasn't three persons in one God. It was God was one person as God who just basically put on three different masks. So, ultimately, enough of the church recognized that Sibelius's teaching was heresy, and we'll see why. Uh, Callistus I, who was the bishop of Rome from 218 to 222, condemned Sibelius as a heretic and excommunicated him. Now, interestingly enough, although the early writers and apologists Tertullian and Hippolytus also opposed Sibelius, they didn't think highly of Bishop Callistus either. Here's an aside to some claims of Roman Catholicism about the position of Bishop of Rome as being a pope or the bishop of bishops over the whole church, as Roman Catholics believe now. Now, Tertullian was an important writer, and he contributed to apologetics during his day in the 3rd century. 
Yes, it is true that Tertullian later became a Montanist in his life, although he was married and had children. The Montanists taught um, a celibacy, but they obviously accepted Tertullian as he was married, probably if he lived a celibate life after that point. So it is true, and the Montanist sect was a schismatic sect that seemed to combine charismatic practices with a commitment to celibacy. And a lot of other people in the church considered this sect heretical. But, you know, they still allow for Tertullian's influence in apologetics. But Tertullian, in his apologetics, didn't regard this bishop of Rome, Callistus, with the authority that modern Roman Catholics grant the office. When Bishop Callistus declared a more lax policy for admitting people who repented from sins like adultery and other licentious acts back into communion with the church, Tertullian referred mockingly to Bishop Callistus as Bishop of Bishops and Pontifex Maximus. Now, the term Bishop of Bishops was to mock the idea that the Bishop of Rome acted as if he had authority over other bishops. The term Pontifex Maximus was for the pagan emperor and as also the head of the state religion at the time. Tertullian was basically name-calling Bishop Callistus and basically claiming that he was arrogant, like overstepping his bounds as if he had more authority than he actually did. And Tertullian said that the authority of binding and loosing was given to the apostles and not to their successors. Hippolytus, or Hippolytus, another well-known apologist and early church writer, actually became another bishop of Rome along with Callistus, and was very critical of Callistus. Hippolytus called him an imposter, and he called those who agreed with him dupes. (laughs) Yes, during the third century, there was little concept of the bishop of Rome having ultimate authority over the whole church. The policies of any bishop were never above scrutiny from apologists. Another example of this in the 4th century is Cyprian's scathing criticism of Bishop Stephen for recognizing baptisms from heretics as valid. Cyprian also wrote that all bishops sit on the chair of Peter, not just the Bishop of Rome. And now even hundreds of years later after that, a statement from an ecumenical council and other letters considered the bishop prior at that time, the bishop of Rome, Honorius I, to be a heretic. We will get into that one actually later with one of our superhero episodes. But my point in this aside is to show that the early church did not regard the bishop of Rome in the way that modern Roman Catholics do. But this is not to defend Sibelius or his teachings. So Bishop Callistus properly considered Sibelius a heretic. I just wanted to point out, as we're doing a history lesson here, that the doctrine of the Bishop of Rome as the Bishop of all bishops or as Pope of over all the church is not biblical, nor is it fully historical here. So now, 
Sabellianism was the early heresy, second and third century heresy, that God is one person in different modes, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just different modes or manifestations of God, not different persons of the one God. Another version of this, because you know, heresies don't just die, there's always someone who picks up the mantle, even if hundreds of years later, into the future. Another form of Sabellianism or modalism that continues on today is in the form of Oneness Pentecostalism. Now, Oneness Pentecostalism began in the early 20th century and combines a modalistic idea of God with a charismatic understanding of spiritual gifts. But evangelical Christians, if we're not careful, if we listen to the teachings of Oneness Pentecostals and other modalists, we might think that what they're saying is orthodox, because after all, they will say that Jesus is Yahweh God, that he is God manifested in the flesh, and that's orthodox language. But we have to understand what they mean by that, because a modalistic understanding is not the truth. It is not the Trinity. If we don't properly understand the Trinity, evangelical fundamentalist Christians can easily see the similar language that modalists offer and not notice the differences between modalism and the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not enough to recognize that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. It's not enough to recognize that there's both a threeness and a oneness to God in some way. It is necessary to recognize in what way God is one and in what way God is three. Well, why? Why is that so important? Well, because doctrines such as the Incarnation and substitutionary atonement actually depend on the correct understanding of who Jesus is and who God is and what the Trinity really is. Well, I might say it's not that one can't believe these doctrines of incarnation and substitutionary atonement and still have a wrong view of the Trinity. It's still possible for that, but it's blissful ignorance and inconsistency. So, really, when people purposely commit themselves to an incorrect idea about the Trinity or the nature of God, what happens is they often throw doctrines like the Incarnation and Substitutionary Atonement under the bus. So, we have to remember, as I say, with each of these comparisons with superheroes, referring to heresies of the early church, the question is always to ask, can this Jesus save me? Can this Jesus be my substitute? That is always the question. And if you just come up with some philosophical idea about who God is and who Jesus is and commit to that, and then throw substitutionary atonement incarnation under the bus, then perhaps you might have to question that doctrine of God and Jesus. Well, then, if modalism is wrong, that God is one person manifest in three modes, what is the Trinity? How is it different? So, according to the doctrine of the Trinity, there is one God who is three co-equal and co-eternal persons. So, how is this different from modalisms? How is person different from mode or manifestation? God is one being consisting of three persons. 
persons. The word being and person are purposefully distinct. Being is what you are. Person is who you are. And the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is eternally three persons. God is eternally one God, one being, one nature, one essence, and three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God is one what? Three persons. As I said, being is what you are. Person is who you are. And modalism says that God is one person who reveals himself in three different ways, like putting on three different masks. But the doctrine of the Trinity is that there are three distinct persons, whose, three eternally distinct whose, three eternally distinct persons of that one being. So what makes God God is the nature, the being, the attributes The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three whos, three personal identities that are all eternal with each other and all share and participate perfectly and exhaustively and entirely in the one being of God. So each person doesn't have one third of the being of God. Each person has 100% of the being of God. So one God, one infinite, eternal being, three persons, three whos, that's the Trinity. Each person of the one being of God performs different roles, but these persons are distinct. They are different whos. They are not just different shows, different modes, different manifestations of one person. They are three persons, but one God. Once again, God is one what, three who's, one essence being nature, three personal identities that have all existed throughout eternity. But why? Isn't this splitting hairs? So what are the problems with modalism or Sabellianism or oneness Pentecostalism? So problem number one, if Jesus is not distinct from the Father, we could ask the question to whom he was praying. You know, when he told the disciples after this manner, pray our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be his name. And they said, teach us to pray. But if Jesus was not truly praying to a father who was his God, even though he shared the being, if the father was not distinct in personhood such that the son could submit to the father, then how was Jesus a model to us if he was really playing a game and pretending things? If he was just praying to himself, then he couldn't be our model for how to obey God and follow the law and pray. And prayer is part of the law. Point number two, if Jesus is not distinct from the Father, to whom was he submitting? As the Carmen Christie says that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus was obedient to someone. Was he just obedient personally to himself? To whom was Jesus submitting if he's not distinct from the Father? Was he truly then born under the law to redeem those who are under the law? If Jesus could not be fully subject to the Father as a distinct person, as his God, as we must be, he was not our example, he was not our substitute. 
He really came to earth then to put on a show for us, to tell us what to do. It's basically, do as I say, not as I do, because you can't do as I do. He could not be our substitute. A modalistic Jesus cannot be our model as our example and as our substitute. So, if we have a modalistic understanding of Jesus, we can only run into either of two different errors based on how we understand who and what Jesus is as God in the flesh. If Jesus is just God the Father taking on a human nature, and he's just one person and God is one person, then the spirit nature of God replaces the spirit component of the human nature, and Jesus is not fully human and can't be our substitute. He is still just putting on a show. He's just basically God animating a body and playing around on the earth. But now the other error is actually more prevalent as we looked at Oneness Pentecostals. The other error is to recognize that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. But that's not an error. But how a modalistic understanding of God tries to do that is an error. This error is to say that Jesus is actually a full human with his own human personhood indwelt by God the Father. So what's wrong with this? This would mean that the Son is the human and the Father is God, as the oneness Pentecostals say, but this would really deny an incarnation. And you might ask, well, how does this deny the incarnation? We're saying that he's fully human and fully God. But it's not an incarnation. This is saying that Jesus is actually a human possessed by God rather than the incarnation of God. So just like a human could be possessed by a demon at some point, and the demon's basically inside him and influencing and speaking, the the demon is another personal being influencing and inside the human being. So this view of Jesus is actually that he's a human being complete with his own human personhood in addition to God the Father indwelling him with his own personhood. And so Jesus becomes schizophrenic and is really two persons. He's possessed by God. He's not the incarnation of God. And so, if we see that only with the Trinity and understanding the distinction between being and person, can we actually have an incarnation? Because only with the Trinity and distinguishing personhood between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can we have a true incarnation. Because only with the Trinity can we have the Son as one person with two full natures. And that, my friends, is the very definition of an incarnation. Jesus has to be only one person, but with two full natures to be a substitute and for the doctrine of the incarnation. If you have a modalistic God who takes on the manifestation of the human being, and if you say he's human being, which would require him to have a full personhood, and that God the Father indwells him, then you have possession, not incarnation. So what are some verses against modalism? How can Jesus not just be the Ant-Man? Unlike the Ant-Man, who's one person who can manifest himself in different ways, like Sibelius taught and oneness Pentecostals today teach, the Father and the Son are coexistent eternally. 
So we see in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, we have Jesus' baptism. It says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see that at the same time, the voice from heaven is the Father. Yes, I know oneness Pentecostals believe that God is omnipresent and therefore can manifest these three at once. But really, is the text communicating God basically being a ventriloquist? No. God the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus the incarnate Son, who's called the Son, and then the Holy Spirit lighting in the dove, shows the Trinity. And now the oneness Pentecostals who say who believe that the Son is only the human run into the problem of John chapter 17 verses 3 through 5 where Jesus praying to the Father, not just praying to himself, not just praying to a Father indwelling him, but praying to the Father in heaven says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So, to have eternal life, you have to know two persons, the Father and the Son. Not God and a human, but God the Father and God the Son. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so Jesus is saying that he, as the Son, possessed glory with the Father before the creation of the world. And yet, in Isaiah, God, Yahweh God, says, My glory will I not give to another. And so this means that Jesus has to be God with the Father, not just the human indwelt by God the Father, but Jesus has to be the Son as God with the Father, eternally sharing glory with the Father as the one God, and incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth. The Father was not incarnate. The Son, the eternal Son of God, is incarnate, and he's one person with two natures. And so his humanity had a beginning in the womb of Mary, but his divinity shares glory with the Father as they are the one divine nature, but the Son experienced the same glory with the Father before the world began. So the Father and the Son are coexistent eternally. Also, the Father and Son are both divine. So John 5, verses 17 through 23 says, Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, in their understanding, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So, as Jesus said, I and my Father are working. Now, what does the Father do in his work? He does divine work. And it's not just saying, God is working and the the human being whom God is indwelling is also working. But Jesus, as divine, is also co-working with the Father as divine. And so, as the Jews believed Jesus to be saying that God was his Father, making himself equal with God, their accusation is correct. 
And now we continue, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, say unto you, The Son could do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Because the, if the Son can do nothing of himself, without but what he seeth the Father do, this shows that even as human, he's not just a human like Batman, because a human, just a human like Batman, could technically rebel against God and has a different will from God. But Jesus is saying that he can do nothing of himself except the Father. But he's saying that what the Father does, he does also, not just because the Father is doing them through him, but he's doing them with the Father. Continuing on verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. So the Son and the Father both raise the dead as divine, not just the Father through the Son, but the Father and the Son together. Verse 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. Now if the Father was just indwelling the Son, then the Father would be judging things and just doing that judgment through the Son. But the Father is not judging, but has committed all the judgment to the Son. This shows the personal distinction between the Father and the Son. Verse 23, That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. So, we don't just honor the Son because the Father is indwelling him as a human being. We honor the Son as we honor the Father, because the Son is also honorable as the Father is honorable as God. And so, the Son is equally God with the Father. And now, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously perform different roles. Let's look at John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So Jesus is saying that he will send the Comforter, he needs to go away. And the Comforter will be sent to him. Not that Jesus would be manifest to the Comforter, but he also says that he will send another Parakletos, another Comforter. So that shows the distinction between the Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And now Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, referring to Jesus, who being the brightness of his, God's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember that Hebrews 1 2 says, by whom... Jesus, God also made the worlds. By the Son, God also made the world. So God didn't create through a human in the womb of Mary. The Son pre-existed with the Father and was an instrumental means in creation as divine and coexistent with the Father. And the Son is the brightness of his glory. How could you say that the human being, that the that the God the Father indwelt, is the brightness of the Father's glory? 
story in the express image or character of his person, the character te supostiseos. That doesn't make sense to just say that the human being that God indwelt or possessed is that. Now, the Son is the revelation of God, and the Son is equally divine with the Father, and the Son is incarnate. The Son upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty and High. So, does a human being who is indwelt by the Father sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Or does this show the personal distinction of the divine Son and the divine Father in the one God? And now another problem with modalism or Sabellianism is that eschatology is involved. Acts chapter 2 verses 32 through 36 says, in Peter's first sermon at Pentecost, he said, This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended to the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so Jesus ascended to heaven. He sits down at the right hand of God, as Hebrews says. He also intercedes on behalf of the faithful. But remember that Jesus sent another comforter to the earth, the Holy Spirit, to minister. And yet Jesus is interceding to the Father, and he's performing the priesthood of Melchizedek, a priest after the order of Melchizedek in heaven, interceding and ministering and reigning from heaven till all his enemies are his footstool, and yet the Holy Spirit is another comforter on earth while Jesus is in heaven ministering, and then Jesus ultimately will return to judge the living and the dead. How does this make any sense if these are just manifestations? These are personal distinctions, and eschatology makes no sense unless we maintain these personal distinctions. And as I said, the problem with modalism ultimately is that with a son who is just God animating a body, or a son who is just God the Father indwelling a human being, possessing a human being, and not being the incarnation of the divine eternal son, denies substitutionary atonement. Because who also, who died on the cross? Was it just the human? Was it just a human being that God indwelt and drove to the cross? But God himself was not part of that. Yes, God indwelt a human being, but it was only the human person and human being who was on the cross, and God the Father just indwelt him and possessed him to do so. That's not an incarnation. That's not one person with two natures, and that's not going to fit the need for substitutionary atonement. That just makes a human die on the cross. That's not the divine person with two natures who, by being human, could be born of a woman born under the law to redeem them under the law and be fully divine to pay the penalty of sins and have the worth himself intrinsic of himself but via the divine nature to be a satisfaction for the father 
No, God did not just indwell a human being and make him die and speak through him. God the Son took on a human nature, not another human personhood, not being a human indwelt by God such that it's two persons. But there's a true incarnation, and an incarnation is necessary for substitutionary atonement. And so, could God, a modalistic God who manifests himself as different ways, be our Savior? Is Jesus like the Ant-Man? Faithful Christians would have to say no. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 